Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In the fall of 1987, seven-year-old April Tinsley started her first grade year at Fairfield Elementary. The News Sentinel described her as having a shy-looking smile, a doll's face, with slightly tousled blonde hair. And frankly, I couldn't come up with a better description if I tried. She was absolutely precious and adorable. According to an interview her cousin did with the genetic detective, that shy smile of hers was always on and she loved to make people laugh. In March of her first grade year, April turned eight, and life just seemed full of wonder. She was young, she was enjoying school, she had the perfect little family, and she had everything in the world to look forward to. It was going to be warming up soon, and in a few months, there would be long summer days of playing with friends and hanging out at the pool, but April's life was stolen before she ever got the chance. On Friday, April 1st, 1988, at around 12.30 p.m., April left her house and walked just a couple of streets over to hang out with her little friend Susie. It was April Fool's Day, Good Friday, and the beginning of Easter weekend, so it is safe to say she had the day off from school. Like any two eight-year-olds would do with the day off, they headed to the park nearby to play for a couple of hours. At around 2.30 p.m., April and Susie decided to walk another short distance to their friend Mary's house. But as they started their walk, April decided she wanted to run home and grab her umbrella. It had rained quite a bit earlier in the day, and according to historical weather data, it had started raining again around the time the two had headed to the park. April was probably just trying to think ahead and avoid any future downpours in the day, so she and Susie parted ways and April told her that she'd meet back up with her at Mary's house. The walk to Mary's was so short that Susie got there within about five minutes, but April never did. Not only did she not make it to Mary's house, but she never even made it back to her own. A little more than an hour after April had left the park, at around 3.35 p.m., April's mom Janet walked over to Susie's house to get April. Her heart froze when she found out that April wasn't there and she wasn't at Mary's house either. Mom panic immediately set in and everyone around, friends, family, neighbors, you name it, they all started scouring the neighborhood trying to find her. They searched for four excruciating hours, but by 7.45 p.m. with no sign of April anywhere, Janet called the police to report her daughter missing. Law enforcement didn't skip a single beat and split off into two teams, one team doing a deep canvas of the neighborhood while the other started interviewing potential witnesses. According to the genetic detective, two people told officers that they'd seen April being forced into a beat-up blue pickup by a white man in his 30s. How not only one, but two people could see this and not intervene or even call 911 blows my mind, but that's where they were. 
Officers ran a search for every blue truck in the county, but as you can imagine, there were thousands. They needed the public's help and asked for anyone who might have seen the truck in the area to please call in. They needed something, anything, to try and narrow down who the truck might belong to. While they waited for tips, more than 70 people spent their Easter weekend searching a 20-block area for April, but no sign of her was found anywhere. Wherever she was, she wasn't in the neighborhood, and it was looking more and more like there was something to that abduction theory. Every single day of searching felt like a lifetime, and when Sunday's search came to an end, it was nothing more than a night's long wait until the next one could start in the morning. On Monday, April 4th, the next search began, but it wasn't the organized search that found something. It was a jogger in Spencerville, about 20 miles northeast from where she had gone missing. And what that jogger found was soul-crushing. At around 3.30 p.m., the jogger came across a little girl's body in a water-filled drainage ditch on County Road 68. Unlike the well-populated county of Fort Wayne, Spencerville is in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It's basically a county made up of adjoining fields. According to the genetic detective, April's body was fully clothed, but her pants were on backwards and she was missing a shoe, something that detectives didn't share with the public until much later. It was estimated that April had likely been dead for 24 to 48 hours and that her body had only been in the ditch for four hours at the most. That means that she may have been kept alive for a period of time and was most definitely killed elsewhere and moved to that ditch. Investigators looked for evidence in the surrounding area and for decades didn't publicly release any details on what they found, but they did in fact find two items of interest. April's missing shoe, which was found on the opposite side of the road, and I fucking hate everything about this, but they found a sex toy in a Sears shopping bag near her body. Her autopsy revealed that April died of asphyxiation and possibly strangulation, and she had been sexually assaulted. DNA was found on her underwear, but forensic science wasn't what it is now back in 1988, and they weren't able to get a profile from the DNA. On April 5th, the day after April's body was discovered, a witness called police to report that in the early morning hours of April 3rd, they had seen a battered blue truck stopped in the middle of County Road 68. That didn't quite match up to the timeline of how long they believed April's body had been there, but it was the only lead they had and it was the third person to mention that blue truck. So the new Sentinel reported that finding that blue truck became police's main focus. At some point over the next two days, someone was able to give a description of the driver, and on April 7th, police released a composite drawing. Whatever Bob Ross-level sketch artist they brought in should be given some kind of award because it was impeccable. If I saw that sketch, I would know without a doubt whether or not I knew that man. He had furrowed eyebrows, hooded eyelids, a narrow nose, a strong chin, and very 80s wispy hair. They estimated him to be in his 30s and weigh around 150 pounds. Because the sketch was so incredible, there was a huge uptick in the number of tips coming in, and those calls led investigators to their first suspect. 
On April 11th, the new Sentinel announced that a 34-year-old man who we'll call George was wanted for questioning in relation to April's murder. Why? More than 140 people had called Crime Stoppers to report how much George looked like the guy in the sketch. On top of that, several of the tipsters reported that George had talked to friends about having knowledge about April's death and said that a blue pickup had been parked outside his home several times. It wasn't looking good for George, but he eventually came in for questioning, and after eight grueling hours of interrogation, Fort Wayne police came to the conclusion that he was not involved in April's murder. That being said, George wasn't off the hook for everything. While he was in the clear as far as April's murder, he was charged in a different case, the molestation of an 11-year-old girl in an apartment that looks like it's just a block away from where April lived. George was later acquitted of the molestation charge. With George crossed off the suspect list, the new Sentinel reported that police took blood and hair samples from at least four other men and compared them to the evidence found on April's body. They were hoping the testing would help them either find their killer or cross some suspects off the list, but it did neither of those things. The results failed to include or exclude any of them. With every lead coming to a dead end, the community and the police were starting to wonder if they would ever catch who did this to April. Time passed and the case grew more and more cold until one day in May of 1990, her killer reappeared in a very made-for-TV, psycho-killer kind of way. On May 21st, 1990, a teenage boy called the police to report that he'd found a message written in crayon and black marker on the front doors of a barn about halfway between where April went missing and where her body was found. According to CNN, he said he didn't know who wrote the message, but he did notice that the print was getting darker and more pronounced every day. Imagine a whole-ass dummy demon killer trying to leave a cryptic message to the public and realizing every day that you didn't make it bold enough for anyone to notice, so you have to keep coming back with crayons and markers until a teenager finds it. With this creepy crayon message finally found, investigators headed to the barn to read it for themselves. It read, and I'm going to quote it directly, I kill eight-year-old April M. Tinsley. Did you find her other shoe? Ha ha, I will kill again. It was written very poorly with several errors, but police were certain it was written by her killer because law enforcement hadn't released the detail that she had been found with only one shoe on. Naturally, the note sent terror through the community of Fort Wayne because it was an undeniable reminder that they had a sick and twisted killer on the loose that could strike again at any time and said that he would. Even with that note on the shed, April's case went another 14 years without much movement at all. It wasn't until the spring of 2004 when April would have been 22 that her killer showed up again. According to the FBI, this time her murderer left not one, but four notes outside of various homes in the Fort Wayne area. This time, his message wasn't going to go unnoticed and for several fucked up reasons. The notes, all on yellow notepad paper, were placed inside baggies along with either used condoms or Polaroid pictures of the killer's genitals. 
Several of the notes referred to April directly, and just like the note on the barn, were all poorly written and often difficult to read. The first note was found on March 25, 2004, in a seven-year-old girl's bicycle basket, which had been left near a sidewalk in front of her house. It read, and I gag, Hi, honey, I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped and rape and kill April Tinsley. There is a present for yo. You are my next vitem. If you don't report this to police or I don't set this in the paper tomorrow or on the local news, I will blow up you house, killing everyone but you. You will be mine. I want to point out that March 25th, 2004 is the same day the media first reported that BTK had been sending letters and photographs to the local paper. It definitely felt possible that April's killer had seen the reports on BTK that day and decided he wanted that same attention. The second note, along with a used condom full of this shitbag's DNA, was found two days later at the house of another seven-year-old girl. It read, Hi, honey. I've been watching you. Here is some semen for you. I am the same person our canpid and rape and murder April Tinsley. You our next. Haha. And if I don't see anything about this on the newspaper or on the TV news, I will blow up you house, killing you family, and you will be mine forever. Again, I'm trying to read these as he wrote them, so it does sound a little broken up. The next letter didn't show up as quickly as the second. There was a 16-day break until on June 12th, a third note was found. It too had a used condom attached to it and was once again found on a seven-year-old girl's bike in her side yard. The note said, Hi, honey. I've been watching. Here is some my semen for you. I am the same person who kidnapped and rape and kill April Tinsley. And you are next if I see you out alone. And if I don't see anything about this in newspaper or TV news, I will blow up you how. I have planted bomb some in you house. In that note, he spelled April's name correctly, and his threats were clearly getting more and more aggressive. The fourth and final note was found 13 days later on June 25th, and this time was on a five-year-old girl's bike outside of her house. There was no condom along with this one, but there was a Polaroid picture of the killer's genitals. The note left on her bike was even more sexually graphic and vulgar than the others. I'm honestly not going to read that one because it is absolutely disgusting on another level in so many ways, and I think you get the picture. According to the FBI, analysis of the four notes in the 1995 graffiti in the barn showed that they were all written by the same person. They concluded that he was likely a white male born in the United States and was attempting to disguise his true intellectual slash education level by using poor spelling and grammar. And as you can imagine, the Fort Wayne community was once again on high alert. They were scared to their core that April's killer would kill again, but he didn't. And he never left any other form of communication for people to find. 
A Fort Wayne police captain talked to CNN about the abrupt end of the contact from the killer, saying, It's definitely very odd. Even the FBI is puzzled by the behavior. That the letters would come out so many years later and then nothing again. In 2005, the semen from the condoms left with the notes was used to create a full DNA profile of the killer. Naturally, a forensic scientist wanted to test the semen from the condoms against the rape kit performed on April, but for whatever unearthly reason that I cannot even begin to comprehend, this scientist was told no. According to the genetic detective, for years, that scientist continued to try and get permission to do the testing, but was denied every single time. In 2009, she just stopped asking and decided she'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. She tested it without their blessing, and wouldn't you know, the profile from the rape kit matched the profile from the condoms. It was a major breakthrough that took an unnecessary number of years to get to. The DNA profile was run through national databases, but no hits were found, which meant that April's killer either hadn't been arrested before or he was dead. With that, the FBI put together a profile on her killer. They determined that he was a preferential child sex offender, which meant he had a long-term and persistent sexual desire for children. In this case, the offender demonstrated a specific sexual interest in little girls who haven't yet reached puberty. Note April's age, the three seven-year-olds he left notes for, and the one five-year-old he left a note for. With that in mind, it didn't rule out that he could interact sexually with adults, just that his overwhelming sexual fantasies and desires focused on young girls. That was important to note because the FBI noted that he may be married, even though the vast majority of preferential child sex offenders are not. The FBI said the offender may establish relationships that give him access to little girls. For instance, he might date or befriend someone in a young girl's family. Perhaps he'd even seek out employment or volunteer activities that give him proximity to little girls. The FBI said he would be drawn to places where children congregate like playgrounds, swimming pools, parks, etc. That the offender preferred the company of children to the company of adults and that he may be socially awkward or inappropriate when interacting with adults. The FBI said that the public tends to think that once a person kidnaps, rapes, and kills, he will always kidnap, rape, and kill. But that's not always the case. That preferential child sex offenders can engage in a lot of different behaviors that might satisfy their sexual needs, but don't rise to the level of their prior offense, like peeping, indecent exposure, and leaving obscene notes or sexual items for a child to find, which put the nail right on the head. The FBI said the offender has demonstrated that he has strong ties to Northeast Fort Wayne and Allen County, which is right between where the barn left was known and the letters were left. They said that that particular area is where he likely works, lives, and or shops, adding, you may be standing next to him in line at the grocery store, sitting beside him in the pew at church, or working beside him on the production line. The FBI was also able to put together the following assumptions about the killer, that he was a white circumcised male currently in his 40s or 50s, that he lived and or worked in the northeast section of Fort Wayne or Allen County and had low to medium low income. With the profile complete, investigators had a lot to work with. 
They had his DNA and a general understanding of who he was as a person, so they went on a media blitz in hopes of bringing in new tips and leads. They even went on America's Most Wanted, which resulted in 400 to 500 tips, but just like before, none of them led to the killer. In May of 2016, when April would have been 37 years old, investigators released a snapshot sketch of the killer done by none other than the legendary Paraben Labs. This lab gives you probable physical attributes based on DNA and creates a digital sketch of that person. It also gives genealogy information that can be used to both eliminate and confirm potential suspects. After the sketch was released, detectives interviewed more people and collected additional DNA swabs for testing. In May of 2018, Paraben contacted Fort Wayne police to let them know that they had a new service available, that they could use genetic genealogy on GEDmatch to potentially identify a family member of the killer. Since they started offering this service, Paraben has helped identify more than 230 persons of interest, which is absolutely bananas. Fort Wayne police said that they'd love to try it out, and by the next month, the queen of genetic geology, Cece Moore, was on the case. Within just a few days, she was able to narrow down the suspect list all the way down to two whole people, a set of brothers. It was either this one or that one. Queen Cece had solved a 30-year-old cold case in days. Cece was also the one who solved the Lindy Beekler case, which we did a couple of months ago. Once the identities of the brothers were known, investigators realized that neither of them had ever been on their radar. They immediately ran the men's criminal history and found that one of the brothers, 59-year-old John Dale Miller, was a close match to the FBI profile. John lived in Graybill, which is between where April's body was found and where the barn door note was left. He'd been living there since the mid-1980s, which is just a few years before April was kidnapped and killed. John had a juvenile arrest record and the details are scarce, but according to what law enforcement has released, John spent time in a boys' school and a juvenile detention facility for sexual assault. And as it turns out, when he was 17, John tried to abduct someone, but the victim fought back and John ran away. Although John didn't have an adult record, he had been investigated for making sexual comments to women and children in shopping center parking lots in 2002 and 2003, though he was never arrested for any of them. Investigators told news station Wayne 15, he was a very private person. He was awkward. He kept to himself. He worked the midnight shift. He went from work to home and did the same thing every day. I think that is the reason he stayed under the radar for 30 years. Wayne 15 reported that neighbors and coworkers all said John was a loner, that he never said hi to anyone and always looked angry. One neighbor said he always had a mean look on his face. He would use swear words a lot when he would get mad. The only thing neighbors ever saw John do outside of his house was walk up and down the street to the softball diamond, which was just a few hundred feet from his house. He would sit and watch the children play, just like the FBI said he would.
The genetic detective reported that when investigators spoke with John's younger brother, they found that John had been teased and bullied in school, that it led him to be angry all the time, and said that his brother didn't mix well with people he worked with. That being said, no one ever suspected that he was some sick, sadistic child predator murderer. In fact, one co-worker from a glass factory he was once fired from told Wayne 15 that she worked with John at the time of April's murder and said that his behavior never changed even when she was found dead. After looking into John, investigators started running surveillance on him. The more they learned, the more they thought they definitely had their guy. All they needed now was a DNA sample to test against the DNA from the case. On July 6, 2018, investigators conducted a covert trash pull at John's house. Once it's out for pickup, it is fair game. So they collected TV dinners, soda, and three used condoms and sent them off for testing. It only took three days for the Indiana State Police to confirm that the DNA from April's murder and the DNA from the letters back in 2004 were a match to John's. On top of that, the lab was able to locate a previously unknown DNA profile from April's jacket, and that too was a match to John. On July 15th, investigators made contact with John after he got home from work. They asked if he'd come down to the station and talk, and he agreed to. According to investigators, John talked about how he loved cop shows and crossword puzzles during the ride to the station. Once there, John was advised of his rights and subsequently agreed to an interview. When asked why he thought investigators wanted to talk to him, he said, I think probably the Tinsley case. I think probably he was right. One detective later told Wayne 15 what we are all thinking. He said, we brought up nothing about April Tinsley's case. And for him to say that, I was like, this is going to go well. I tried to remain calm, casual, look at him. I didn't want to jump out of my chair. Detectives asked John what made him bring up the Tinsley case, and he said that it was because he watched America's Most Wanted, which literally features a bajillion different cases. One detective said, that kind of rang a bell with you a little bit, did it? To which John chuckled and said, yeah. According to an arrest affidavit, detectives told John that they'd matched his DNA to the DNA evidence left on April Tinsley and the condoms left with the letters saying that he had killed her. They asked John if he could tell them what happened to April, but John replied, I can't. He could stonewall investigators all he wanted, though, because they had all the evidence they needed and nothing but time. Eventually, their persistence worked because John ended up giving them very specific details and times of the abduction, rape, and murder. One detective noted that John seemed like he was reliving the crime as he confessed. In his confession, John told detectives that he didn't know April. He had no connection to her family or even her neighborhood. He simply wanted to kidnap and rape a girl, so he went out looking for a suitable child. When he saw April, he decided that she was the perfect target, and that was that. One detective later told Wayne 15, It's scary to think there are people in our society capable of doing this. Had she been five minutes earlier or five minutes later, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. It could have been anybody, any little kid in that area that day, and that was probably not the first time he had gone looking. 
On April 1st, 1988, John, who was 28 at the time, was standing by his car when he saw 8-year-old April walking down the sidewalk. He grabbed her and showed her a sharp letter opener. He told her to get into his car, which was a blue car, not a blue truck. Once in there, April begged John, please don't hurt me, I'll do whatever you say. Once they were inside his house, John sexually assaulted April multiple times before choking her to death. John told investigators he thought about letting her go, but was afraid she would tell on him. The following morning, John drove April's body out to the ditch and left her there. By the next day, John hadn't seen anything on the news about April's body being found, so he went back to the ditch to see if her body was still there, and it was. At that time, he noticed that one of April's shoes was still in his car, so he threw it on the opposite side of the road and left. John talked about his life after the murder and said that he'd actually left the message on the barn two months before it was ever found. He also revealed that following April's murder, he'd gone out looking for a new victim but could never find the perfect opportunity. Investigators had a difficult time believing that John had never killed anyone else. One detective told Wayne 15 to think he could do something so heinous as what he did to April in 1988 and then just stop. I think everyone was very skeptical of that and I think we tried to answer those questions. We were very direct with John about other cases. We knew there was no DNA match, but we were persistent with John to tell us and help other families. If there are other families, and he was very insistent there was not. It was incredible that he went looking and fortunately no one was there. Following his confession, John Dale Miller was charged with murder and child molestation. April's mother Janet told Wayne 15 that she never imagined an arrest would be made. She said, it's what we've been wanting for so many years and now it's here. We're all pretty much at peace right now. We can be a little bit calmer. We can sleep. Janet believes April is up there smiling. She's up there doing the happy dance now. She told the genetic detective that she made sure to sit in the front row during his arraignment because she wanted him to see her. She needed him to see what he destroyed. Once people watched footage of John in court for the first time, a lot of people had questions about his level of intelligence. But a detective told Wayne 15 that John was found competent to stand trial, saying he knows what he did. He knows right from wrong. He's socially awkward and he's not well educated, but he's just like anyone else and he knows what he's doing. On December 7th, 2018, John pled guilty to both charges. He was sentenced to 50 years for April's murder and an additional 30 years for child molestation. He is currently in his forever concrete home at Newcastle Correctional Annex with his earliest possible release date in July of 2058 when he'll be 99 years old. April's mom, Janet, told the genetic detective that her closure will come when John dies. For now, her peace comes from April's Garden Memorial, which is right around the corner from the house she lived in when she was killed. It's lined with engraved bricks, five dogwood trees, roses, and lilac bushes. Her mom often sits there for hours at a time remembering her daughter. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out April's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 